So almost without exception, every message that we preach here at Scottsdale Bible Church is based upon the teachings of the Bible. And some of you are saying, well, duh, I mean, you're a Bible church. And that's exactly right. We believe that our truth source at this church comes from knowledge of the Bible and that that's how we follow God. And the vast majority of our messages that, again, are based on the Bible, we actually exegete or dissect at least one key piece of Scripture. Again, for good reason, because the Bible is our source for truth. We also believe here at Scottsdale Bible Church that in order to understand it rightly, we might as well study study it as it has been given to us, right? And so we do topical messages, but but usually we're doing line by line, verse by verse, and and studying the Bible as it's been laid out to us. That's what we do best here at Scottsdale Bible. And then taking all of this even further, I decided that when I came here as your senior pastor over three and a half years ago to make sure that we studied and preached from at least one entire book of the Bible each year and many times two books, if they're shorter books, from start to finish so that at the very least we would end up saying at the end of each year that we have nailed one or two books of the Bible when it comes to learning and living His truth to us. And so you can do the math. If you stay with us for anywhere between 33 and 50 years, we'll make it through the entire Bible. And I have no idea how many of us will be here that long, but it's a nice thought. Anyways, and so in the last three and a half years, we have studied, look up here on the screen, we've studied in depth Esther, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Ruth, Jonah, and 1 John. Not bad for the first three years. Esther, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Ruth, Jonah, and John. And you can get those on CD or through our website. We obviously keep them around. And so this morning, in keeping with our desire to study God's Word as it is laid out to us, we kick off a 10-week study on our primary book this year. It's the book of Philippians. And it's only four chapters long. It's just a few pages in your Bible if you want to look it up. But I don't want us to rush it. We don't want to simply sightsee or drive by this book and its truth. We want to get it, wrestle with it, digest it, apply it, and then nail it. And I believe that you're going to love the series that we're embarking on here today through the New Testament book of Philippians. All right? So why don't you bow with me right now. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, as I said in the first service, I'll say in this one, I... I love Jesus more than anything in this world. You saved my soul over 30 years ago, and I've never looked back. And I thank you for the redemption that I have in Jesus Christ and that keeps me going each and every day. And now the Holy Spirit who lives in me. And yet, Father, I also admit that without your word, without your truths to us, I would know very little about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the character of the Father. I'd know so very little about my Christian faith and the resources that I have in Christ. And so I thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the uh, richness that it gives to us in pointing us to how to follow you faithfully this side of heaven. So, God, as we embark on this journey through the book of Philippians today, I pray that uh, we might understand rightly what you have revealed to us in it. And then, Lord, as I always do, that we would have the courage to apply diligently the things that we learn. Make us not just hearers of the word, Lord, but doers as well. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. And so here's what I want to do this morning uh, as we begin this journey through the book of Philippians, and that is that I want to set up this series with you by uh, literally um, walking you through what I call the setting, and then the reason, and then the theme that God has given us the book of Philippians. 
I know for those of you who are Bible study fanatics, those of you who have gone through the Bible a bunch of times, as soon as you hear somebody say they're going to do an introductory message that sets up the setting and the reason and the theme of the book that we're going to be studying, you think Snoozeville. You think, man, is this going to be a sermon that I'm going to tune out to or what? Because usually that stuff is quite dry, if not boring. But I'm going to do my best today, and hopefully the Holy Spirit is living in you and among you and among all of us, to show you that the setting and the reason and the theme for the book of Philippians is not only very important to know for our journey through it, but it actually contains some really relevant stuff, some really practical and livable stuff, some really important stuff for you and me that we're going to need even today as we begin to digest the book of Philippians, okay? So, so just join in with me here, and I, and I think you're going to like where we're going. So first, the setting, the setting of the book of Philippians. Look up here on the screen. Here it is. It's an uphill struggle in a downhill culture. Can you relate it all yet? That was a setting 2,000 years ago for the book of Philippians. It was a book written to a people that had an uphill struggle in a downhill culture. And so look up here on the screen some important fast facts about Philippians. Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 of 27 New Testament books. And he wrote it sometime between 60 and 62 A.D., which means very little to many of you, but just notch away that it was written some 25 to 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, about 25, 30 years after Pentecost there. Paul was the founding pastor of the church in Philippi. He started the church around 49 A.D. in his second missionary journey. And so when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, the church was now about 11 to 13 years old, a relatively young church still. Scottsdale Bible is going to celebrate its 50th anniversary next year. That'll be a big deal for us, but just notch away that the book of Philippians was like one quarter to one fifth as old as Scottsdale Bible is. At the time of this writing of Philippians, Paul is now in jail in Rome where he would die in just a few years. It's toward the end of his life. He'd been arrested for preaching his faith in a culture that didn't have the protections that you and I have when it comes to religious freedom. His good friend and sidekick Timothy is with him in Rome. And most likely Timothy is the one who actually wrote the book of Philippians as Paul dictated to him what he wanted him to say. And then he would make sure he got to the church in Philippi. Now, believe it or not, all that's prelude stuff. Here's the most important thing you need to know about Philippi when it comes to the setting in order for us to dive into this book. And that is that Philippi was a Roman colony in an historically Greek area. That's what you need to know. Philippi itself, the setting, is a Roman colony in an historically Greek area. It's located in the far northeast corner of what today is modern-day Greece. And Philippi was a town that had been founded some 400 years earlier, just before the time of Alexander the Great, by the Greeks. And yet it had been taken over by the Roman Empire about 90 years before Paul got there. And so over these 90 years, it had become a thriving, rugged military town, part of the famous Roman road, in which lots of veterans from the Roman army retired there. So if you want to picture Philippi back then, picture about three or four VFW halls with a bunch of grouchy men swapping war stories over a couple of beers. That would be Philippi back then. It was a rugged military outpost filled with a lot of men's men who were married to a lot of women's women. 
And so this brings us to the heart of what we need to understand about Philippi, and that, it was, and that is that it was very, a very secular city. And it was not a very friendly place to new or even any spiritual ideas. And yet certainly the kind of place that Jesus would have visited, amen, I mean, certainly the kind of place he would have gone to uh, to try to win lost people and talk to them about the kingdom of God. So Paul, on his missionary journeys, decides to go there. And yet what you need to see is that it's about as secular and remote from all the religious stuff in Palestine as you can get. Even geographically, this is true. Now, give me a click here, guys. Look up here on the screen. I want to show you this in black and white. This is a map of back then, what you would have is the Middle East, and then far western Asia, and then far eastern Europe. The Aegean Sea there on the left separates Europe and Asia. And so give me another click here. Here is Palestine today and back then. You can see it on the bottom right there. You see Nazareth and Samaria and Jerusalem. That, that's the Holy Land where the temple is, where they pray, where all the rituals are. It's where Judaism, which is what Jesus was born in and under, uh, was thriving at that time. And then give me another click here. This is where Philippi is. Do you see that there? Philippi is way off to the northwest, about as far as Paul the Apostle would go at that time until he eventually went to Rome. And Philippi, again, is a Roman outpost in which there's no temple, no synagogues, no traditions, no openness to God or spiritual things. It's way off to the northwest from anything remotely monotheistic. If they have any type of religion in Philippi, it would be one of the Roman fictitious religions or the Greek god system with Zeus and Apollo and all of that. But even that wasn't very alive there because, again, it's a bunch of ex-veterans who really aren't interested in spiritual things. And, and, And so what I need you to see is that there was not a lot of openness to God and the Bible in Philippi. And this caused a lot of conflict and even persecution at times for the Christians that you can read about in Acts chapter 16, if you like, because that's where it all started. And so this is the setting, a relatively new church in a 100-year-old colony in one of the most powerful cultures known to antiquity, the Roman culture, all filled with lots of secularism and moral relativism that was certainly not friendly to the truth claims of Christianity. And all I can say is that in many ways, this is definitely going to be a book that you and I will relate to very easily given our setting. And some of you are thinking right now, well, what do you mean, Jamie? I mean, you know, we aren't miles away from any spiritual place of worship. We don't get put into prison for talking about Jesus with our friends. And so, you know, what is it that we have in common with Philippi? And I would simply respond by saying, have you noticed what has happened to our country and culture since its founding more than 200 years ago? Or have you been asleep? I mean, sure, we got lots of churches nowadays, but when you look closely at what has happened to American culture, especially in the last 100 years, you can't help but notice that we've gone from a relatively Christian nation, or at least a nation that was founded upon Judeo-Christian values, to now a nation that has fallen greatly in its moral decline, and that like an extreme makeover in reverse doesn't look anything like it did morally in its infancy. You know, it said in the 1850s that the great French statesman Alexis de Tocqueville visited America. And at one point he commented, and I quote, he said, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. 
And I remember when Reagan said that back in the 1980s, I thought that is like prophetic where America has come from in the last 100 years. He said, if we ever cease to be great, we'll cease to be, or if we ever cease to be good, we'll cease to be great. And sure enough, that's what is happening today. And so check this out. In a study done in late 2003, the ever popular and well-respected pollster, George Barna, revealed that out of 10 basic and fundamental moral behaviors, I mean things like sexual deviance, drunkenness, profanity, I mean just the basic 10, that three of them, gambling, living together before marriage, and sexual fantasies, lust, are considered morally acceptable by the majority of Americans polled. Let that sink in a moment. Not just morally tolerated, like, hey, you know, if you do these things, you know, I I guess you're a sinner, but we'll accept you. But morally acceptable, like if you do these things, water off a duck's back, not really a big deal, don't feel all that guilty about it. It's just part of the norm. Barna found that the majority of Americans view cohabitation, lust, and gambling this way. Interestingly, he further found that with two of these other ten behaviors he polled Americans about, abortion and adultery, that they likewise were considered morally acceptable by about half of the American population. And in addition, with four of these ten behaviors, pornography, profanity, drunkenness, and homosexuality, about one-third of Americans declared them morally acceptable. And yet, folks, here's what really made this study so ironic, and that is that of these same adults polled, more than four out of five of them, a whopping 83% of them, cited that they were, and I quote, concerned about the moral condition of our nation. And I remember thinking when I got to that point in the study, I thought, well, duh, of course you're concerned about the moral condition of our nation. You should be concerned about your own answers. Because it's your own answers that have created the dilemma that you and I are in. I mean, the founders of our country would have never answered it like they did in Barnum's poll. They would have never done that. Even the deists like Jefferson, those who weren't evangelical Christians, at least had a moral standard that they lived by, that they knew it had to be written to the fabric of our culture, that if we lost, everything was going to be chaotic. This is why guys like Thomas Williams, writing in the magazine First Things, published by the Institute of Religion and Public Life, says this. Look up here on the screen. He says, There exists a solid center of genuinely concerned Americans who have seen the bottom fallout of the public moral conscience in little more than a generation. Moral ideas today are subjective and relative. They are mere customs and conventions. They have a purely instrumental utilitarian purpose, and they are peculiar to specific individuals and societies. I mean, have you noticed, folks? Our values have definitely changed in this nation of ours. The standard is clearly lower and is now based not on some yardstick of right or wrong like the Bible, but more on what each person feels is right or feels is wrong in any given moment. And so as a result of this, even culture watchers from other nations write regularly on how decadent and secular our country has become. In a recent book entitled American Social Diseases, written by a Chinese intellectual of all people, while citing our problems of drug abuse, crime, and sexual indulgence, he says, and I quote, the U.S. suffers from a spiritual deficit and faces moral extinction. And folks, I think he's right. I don't think that's hyperbole. 
And then we get to the book of Philippi and we say, we can't relate to Philippi. We can't relate to an uphill struggle in a downhill culture. Hogwash. Of course we can. All of us can. America, more so than just about any other nation around, can relate to a Roman colony in a Greek area in one of the most powerful cultures ever known to history that is struggling with increasing secularism and a decline in moral values as Christians try to live out their faith in that kind of culture. If anybody can relate to Philippians, we can. If anybody can relate to an uphill struggle in a downhill culture, you and I from our generations over the last 40, 50 years can relate to Philippi. And so relate we will. And as we do, we're going to find the things that Paul shares with the Philippians are going to be incredibly life-giving and soul-reviving to us as well. Hang on to your pew. It's going to be a great ride for the next 10 weeks. Now, This brings us to the second thing I want to share with you by way of introduction to Philippians. The first was the setting there. Now I want to share with you the reason that this letter was written. And believe it or not, we get much more positive at this point. And some of you are saying, finally, thank you. And here's the reason that this letter was originally penned. And that is that it was a friend-to-friend letter of encouragement. You're going to like this. A friend-to-friend letter of encouragement. Now, folks, this is very, very fascinating. And the reason that this is fascinating is because if you know anything about the New Testament, and specifically anything about Paul's letter, what theologians call epistles, you know that most of them were either written to some kind of problem or issue that a particular church was dealing with, or they were writing, Paul was writing to one of his pastoral interns about doctrinal and pastoral concerns. Those are the two main reasons these letters exist. So, for instance, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, his two letters to them, he was writing about their love affair with sin. Have you read the books? The fact that they were really into sin, they were flaunting it like no big deal, water off a duck's back. He's saying, I don't think Christians should live that way. When he wrote to the, to the Ephesians, he was writing to them about unity because they were very disunified. When he wrote to Galatia and to Rome, he was writing about the core of the gospel and saying, you guys don't even get it yet. Here's what the gospel is. You get the picture. He writes to these churches about particular problems that they have, and that is what the reason is for the book to be written. Or he writes to guys like Timothy, Titus, and Philemon about general pastoral concerns, how to be better pastors, elders, and Christians. But then, interestingly, we get to Philippians, and check this out, Paul is neither writing about a particular sin or problem, isn't that interesting? Nor is he addressing any doctrinal or pastoral concerns. But what he is doing is uniquely and positively writing a very personal and intimate thank you letter, because you might remember that they had given him a generous gift to be given to the poor back in Jerusalem. And so Paul is thanking these believers in Philippi, and in the process he's encouraging them profoundly, pointedly, and powerfully in their newfound faith and in their struggle to walk with Jesus. And so Philippians is what academic Bible commentators call a hortatory letter of encouragement. Some of you are going to write that word down. A hortatory letter of encouragement. Hortatory simply being the art of encouragement and spurring another along. And so get this. Instead of opening this letter by Paul himself declaring himself an apostle, 
which he did in so many of his letters because that would establish his authority to say, I'm about ready to come on you with a velvet hammer, so listen up. Instead of opening the letter like that, he opens his letter like this. Look at Philippians 1, verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Interesting. Servants, or as the famous New American Standard Bible clarifies, bond servants. So Paul is not coming to them with authority and an apostolic hammer, but as a friend. And then as we're going to read on in the coming weeks, he's going to talk about their partnership in the gospel. He's going to talk about the joy that these people give him. And he's going to talk about how he longs to see them and he's been praying for them. And he's going to talk about how how the thank you that he gives in chapter 4 for the gift that they had given. Again, don't miss this. He is not coming to the Philippians as a father figure as he does with Timothy and Titus. And he's not addressing them with some apostolic authority as he does with most of the other churches. He is writing to them as friends with an emphasis on encouraging them in their uphill struggle in a downhill culture. And so here's the point for you and me. And that is as you and I journey through this book over the next 10 weeks, I beg you to see this as simply and profoundly as you would any other letter that you might get from a good friend that you trust and are willing to listen to because they are wise and godly in your life. Personalize this letter for you. I've been doing that for me lately. See Paul the Apostle, though you don't know him now, you'll meet him in glory. See Paul the Apostle as a friend who's come alongside you, maybe having a cup of coffee at Starbucks with you, saying, let me thank you for what you did, for that great gift you gave me. And now let me encourage you on how to walk godly in Mesa, how to walk godly in Gilbert, how to walk godly in Scottsdale, how to walk godly in Phoenix. Let me encourage you how to walk godly in this downhill culture of ours, because believe me, I know that things have changed. That's a friend-to-friend letter of encouragement, unique and powerful among the entire corpus of New Testament writings. And so once we've established this, the setting and the reason, it's at this point we only have one last question to ask in our introduction here. And that is, what is Paul then really saying to us in this letter? I mean, what is the nature of this encouragement that you keep saying we're going to get so much out of, Jamie? And here it is. This is the last thing, the final thing I want to share with you by way of introduction to Philippians this morning. The last thing you need to understand to get the most out of this book. And that is that the whole book is about you becoming what you already are. Man, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. The whole theme of this book is about you becoming what you already are. I know that's confusing to some of you. I'll explain it in a sec. Or as our message title says, it's about you becoming the true you in Christ Jesus. The true you in Christ Jesus. And some of you are saying, well, what does all that mean? I mean, it's just gobbledygook. What are you talking about? I want to show you. Now listen very closely, folks. One of the things that the book of Philippians makes very clear is that right now, As believers and followers of Jesus Christ, where you sit here this morning, there are certain key things that are true about you, certain declared realities that have to do with your spiritual state and your spiritual position before God that you carry with you everywhere you go. And these are not downer things. They are wonderful and life-giving and powerful things, amazing realities 
that God has blessed you with right now simply because you're a follower of His Son, Jesus Christ. Theologians call these things positional realities. They have to do with your position in Christ before you've even done anything or said anything. Even if you've messed up greatly as a follower of Jesus Christ, these things are still true about you. You carry them with you de facto because you are in Christ, as the Scriptures say. So what kind of things are we talking about? Look at what Philippians lists together here. Again, this is an introductory message, so I'm just going to list a bunch of things from chapter 1 through chapter 4 there. And I put it all on the screen there, so if it's too small, blame me. I told our PowerPoint people I want it all up there so you can see it in one fell swoop. Notice with me what the Scriptures say are true about you and me in Christ right now. Chapter 1, verse 1, you are saints in Christ Jesus. Right now a saint. You say, but I feel like a sinner. I get that. God calls you a saint. It says that he has begun a good work in you. The day you were saved, a good work began in you. It further says that you are filled with the fruit of righteousness. We're going to flesh that one out, but you've got to be asking yourself, what's that about? Filled with the fruit of righteousness. Yep, right now where you sit, you're filled with the fruit of righteousness. Philippians tells us that God is working in you to this day. He's working in you. It says that all of us together are the true circumcision, meaning the true people of God, complete with all the blessings that come as a result of that. It further tells us that Christ has laid hold of us, never to let go. So the moment that you were saved, the moment you came to believe in Jesus Christ, he laid hold of you, he gripped your life, and he says, I'm never letting go of you. That's true about you right now, where you sit. This is interesting. In chapter 3, verse 16, it tells us that you have attained a standard. Some of you say, whoa, attained a standard. Yeah, already you have risen in God's eyes as ones who have attained a standard befitting to carry his name. It says that your citizenship is in heaven. In other words, this earth is not your home. And that your name is written in the book of life already there right now. Don't miss this, guys. There's a certain perspective as well as position that God has now declared upon the life of the believer in Jesus Christ that is true simply by being in Christ. Before anybody ever does or not does anything just by being followers of Christ. You're forgiven. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're dead to sin and alive to Christ. You're declared righteous and pure in His sight. You've crossed over from death into life. I mean, look at that list again behind me. And you can't help but notice that there is a particular position or perspective that God has endowed us with as believers in Jesus. And the question I want you to ask yourself is, isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? I mean, I know this is a primarily a white, upper-middle-class church, but you've got to be ready to jump out of your pew about now. Amen? I mean, if I was in the inner city with a lot of our black brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, they'd be yelling about now. And they'd be saying, preach it. This is awesome. I can't, I mean, this is true about me? This is true right now? I, I mean, I brought a bunch of sin in here today. I messed up. I sped on the freeway, yelled at my kids. I mean, I, I've done a lot of things, and it's, and it's Sunday. And yet you're telling me that all these things are true about me and Christ? It can't be. That's the response that we should all have right now. You should be feeling so much excitement inside your soul, and yet also at the same time saying, but, but how can this be? How, how can that really be true by me? It's got to be wishful thinking. And yet the reality is it's not. The reality is that God says on a positional level, even though you don't measure up on a practical level, He has still promoted you to this level in Christ. And these things are true about you de facto 
just by being in Christ. Now, let me give you a great analogy that helped me years ago in trying to get this understanding with the positional righteousness that we have in Christ. Say for the sake of argument that you wake up tomorrow and you go into the office, wherever you work, and you find that over the weekend, the powers that be got together and they promoted you five or six levels at the work that you work at. Five or six levels. And it is such a significant promotion that you now have a full-time secretary or maybe two. You have a bigger financial budget. You got more people reporting to you. You got a new company car. And in addition now, everybody sees you very different. You walk in and you can feel it. It's palpable. They're like calling you Mr. or Mrs. Vice President. And, and you realize that you're, you have an entirely new position, that everything's changed. You have a whole new complete set of responsibilities. And all these things you realize are also very true about you. It's not a pipe dream. It's not blowing smoke. They're real. And it's very true about your new position. They're not fake. They're not wishful thinking. And yet you also realize, and tell me if this wouldn't be true if this happened to you tomorrow morning, that you haven't done anything yet to really live up to your new position. And even more, though these things are positionally true about you right now, on a practical level, you haven't done anything that would really allow you to live out of your new position. You haven't made any major decisions for the company. You haven't hired or fired anybody. You haven't forged a new hill for the company. In other words, you haven't done anything yet, and yet you've been promoted five or six levels, and you've got all these resources at your disposal. And in one sense, you're glad, because like, wow, what an opportunity. And in another sense, you're terrified, because you go, I know who I really am, and I know what I'm made of. And, and, and I'm not sure that I can live up to this position that I'm in. Folks, if you can grab onto that at all, and you can, this is exactly what the Scriptures, and particularly the book of the Philippians, says about this Christian. That you and I have been endowed with a powerful and very real set of positional realities that are true about you right now where you sit. You are forgiven. You've been given power over sin, righteousness in God's sight. You have died with Christ, and now you're living to Him and not to sin anymore. As Ephesians 1.3 says, I think Troy read it earlier, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I remember when I first read that 20 years ago in seminary, I thought, every spiritual blessing? Every one? I looked up that word in the original Greek. You know what that word literally means? Every. It means every spiritual blessing, and they got that one right. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places have been now given to you. Peter believed this so strongly that he would say in his letter, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, everything that we need. That's true about you. That's the true you right now. But like the guy who just got promoted at work and has all these wonderful truisms about him or her as well, He or she needs now to begin seeing himself or herself as well as living up to this new position in order to attain to it, right? And that's the note I want to end on. That's what the book of Philippians is getting at. You need to become what you already are. You need to start living up to now the declared realities that God has placed upon your life as a follower of him. Look at how Philippians will say it in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is really a theme passage for the entire book. It says, Therefore, my beloved, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Do you get the sense here of becoming what you already are? It says on the one hand that God is at work in you. You've already been declared righteous, holy, forgiven, filled with the Holy Spirit. You've got power, you've got purpose. All that is true about you today where you sit. He's at work in you. 
But then also notice that it says, but then you work out your own salvation. In other words, rise up and now live up to the calling that you have. Learn to defeat sin. Learn to love like Jesus loved. Learn to develop a trust in Christ that forges a character and integrity that will turn heads in your spheres of influence. In a very real way, this is giving us what you might call a God part and an our part. Though what we're going to see as we go along in this series is that even when it comes to our part, we're going to look back and say, but God really did it. He's going to get all the glory and all the credit. But nevertheless, there's going to be some challenges for you and I to take some steps to become what we already are. And the only question left then is how? I mean, how do we really become what we are, the true us? And folks, this is where the book of Philippians is going to blow us out of the spiritual water. Because as we go through this book, and as we look at all these uh, these, uh, positional things that are true about us, you know what we're going to find? Is that right alongside each one of these things that are positionally true about us, the book of Philippians, Paul the Apostle, is then going to give us some practical help on how we can live up to these things. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's, He's a total realist. Paul is going to say, yes, this is positionally true about you, but then here's what you can do, here's what you can be, here's what you can become, and here's how you can do it in the midst of you trying to live now your full reality in Jesus Christ. And so look up here on the screen. Here's a list of some of the things that we're going to be looking at as we learn to become what we are. Give me another click here, guys. We're going to take a look next week at how to be prayerful in our life, true communication, so that we can live up to this relationship that we now have in Jesus Christ. We're going to learn how to talk to God in a more concerted way. Then we're going to look at how we can become more persevering in our life. We're calling it holding true. How we can become people who really learn how to have stick-to-itiveness, staying power, tying a knot and hanging on in this downhill culture in which we have an uphill struggle. But we're going to learn how to think more eternally-minded in this thing. You know, that's the problem with American evangelicalism, is that we're so mired in materialism, we're so mired in success, we're so mired in pragmatic stuff that, that most of us every day just think about the world and here and now and our 401ks and our kids and college, and, and those are all good things. But, but we're going to learn how, how to maybe have an eternal mindset toward those things. We're, we're calling it dream come true. But we're going to learn how to be more unified, how to be more humble, I'm so excited about this. What we're going to learn as a church, how to be more joyful. You know, the average Christian day is not seen as joyful. You ever notice that? The average Christian day is seen like a spiritual Eeyore. Remember that from Winnie the Pooh? Am I right? I mean, they are. I mean, a godly Eeyore. I mean, we got the values thing down, but we don't have any joy. I mean, people are like, yeah, that's a godly person. I don't want to be around them because they're not very joyful. And yet joy is written all throughout the New Testament through the entire life of Jesus. And Philippians is going to hit us head on. Paul is going to encourage us. Have more joy. True breakthrough, we're going to call it. We're going to learn how to be Christ-focused, not just God-focused. We're going to learn how to be examples and imitators in our lives. Examples to those around us who need them and imitators of godly people around us. Tried and true. And then my favorite. We're going to learn how to be more content. I think the number one disease... For evangelical Christians living in our downhill culture is contentment. It's contentment. We're not a contented bunch. We're not contented at all with the things we have. We're not contented with our church. Believe me, I hear that one. We're not contented with lots of things in our lives. We're not contented in our marriage. We're not contented with our kids. We're not contented with our job. And again, there's good reason. There's, there's like such thing as a holy discontentment, H-O-L-Y. But the reality is I think a lot of our discontentment comes from the flesh too. We haven't learned yet how to be content in Christ. 
and find our sufficiency in him. And as a result of that, we're a very discontented bunch. Well, we're going to learn how to be more content. In a very real way, folks, what we're going to do is we're going to learn over the next 10 weeks how to get more than 50 cents out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a great word picture, 50 cents out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was about five, six years ago that I picked up a book for a men's group that I was leading called The Gospel for Real Life. Give me a click here, guys. Written by Jerry Bridges. Some of you might remember Jerry Bridges. He was an author back in the 80s who got on the map when he wrote a book. He was on staff with the Navigators, wrote a book called The uh, Pursuit of Holiness, and then wrote up a corollary one called The Pursuit of Godliness. And many of us read those books and were just moved by them to more godliness and holiness in our lives. It's just a great thing. But, you know, like a lot of guys that write really popular books, what we don't realize is they wrote ones after that as well. But we didn't necessarily read those. And Jerry Bridges has been writing books ever since then. So I picked up the Gospel for Real Life, and it's just a great book on grounding people in the Gospel. And I had a men's group that I was leading go through this. And he tells a story on pages 15 to 16 that I thought were so cool I want to read for you. It has to do with trying to get more than 50 cents out of the Gospel. He says, some years ago, our pastor told an unusual story about a southern plantation owner who left a $50,000 inheritance to a former slave who had served him faithfully all his life. That was quite a sum of money in those days, perhaps equivalent to half a million dollars today. The lawyer for the estate duly notified the old man of his inheritance and told him that the money had been deposited for him at the local bank. Weeks went by, and the former slave never called for any of his inheritance. Finally, the banker called him in and told him again that he had $50,000 available to draw on at any time. The old man replied, Sir, do you think that I could have 50 cents to buy a sack of cornmeal? Not having handled money most of his life, this former slave had no comprehension of his current wealth. As a result, he was asking for 50 cents when he could have easily asked for much, much more. Bridges goes on to say, that story illustrates the plight of many Christians today. The Apostle Paul wrote of preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was obviously not reflecting on financial wealth, but to the glorious truths of the gospel. To use the figures from the former slave story, Paul was saying that each of us has $50,000 available to us in the gospel. Yet most of us are hoping we can squeeze out 50 cents worth. Why is this true? The answer is, we don't understand the riches of the gospel any more than the former slave understood the riches of $50,000. And folks, I think Bridges is right. That's what the book of Philippians is all about. You and me learning to get more than just 50 cents out of the $50,000 gospel that we've been given. And so as we embark on this journey this morning, here's the choice that you have before you. I I don't want to be a tough guy, but but this really is the choice you've been listening that you and I have before us. And that is that we can either stay mired in our comfortable world of churchianity, garnishing about 50 cents worth of the gospel through casual church attendance, sporadic Bible reading, prayers on the run, shallow fellowship that we all know leaves us empty, or we can make a decision today to journey through the book of Philippians in a concerted fashion and learn to get thousands more spiritual dollars and riches out of our walk with Christ. Truly, folks, we're embarking on a journey over the next couple of months here at our church to become what we are, the true us, and it's a journey that will not disappoint if you take God at his word. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Let's pray. 
Father God, I thank you that once again, your word comes along and in the midst of a lot of the confusion and the unknowns and all the crud we deal with day in and day out, it adds absolute clarity to our lives. Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there are many of us who come in here today with lots of things on our mind, things about our health, our work, our kids, our family, our neighborhoods, our world. Lord, lots of things that vie for our attention. And God, those things can get so very complicated so very fast. And yet, Lord, you come along and you say, lift your sights beyond all of that. I've made some things true about you in Christ. Let's now live from that vantage point. And so, Father, I pray that over the next few weeks, as we flesh out what it means to be forgiven, as we flesh out what it means to have the Spirit in us, as we flesh out what it means to be saints, what it means to have Christ have already laid hold of, hold of us to the point that we're now the true circumcision, as we, Lord, explore all of that and look at such themes as perseverance and communication and prayer and joy and contentedness and Christ's focus. And Lord, as we do all that, I pray, God, that you do nothing but help us to become what you've already declared we are. And Lord, in that process, may you grow us. May you mature us. May you even grow some of us up finally when it comes to our, our relationship with you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it points us so clearly to Christ in which our joy is to be found. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.